Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> we are in session 108 here. Good to be back with you guys again after uh, uh, our time at Mythmoot. Uh, last week was a lot of fun. We were we did our reenactment of the Flight of the Ford. I'll talk about that uh, in just a couple minutes. Um, before I get going, just a couple quick announcements. The primary announcement is that I'm back and... Um, we are, uh, uh, should be back to, as far as I know, I'm back to all of my regular broadcasts this week, which means, of course, we're here now, tonight. Uh, tomorrow night, we're going to be doing our next session on uh, the Scouring of the Shire, finishing the Scouring of the Shire, and, and going through, hopefully, getting to uh, the unpublished epilogue of The Lord of the Rings uh, for uh, for next time. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we get all the way there uh, in Sauron Defeated. Uh, for the Mythgard Academy class, so that's tomorrow night at 10 p.m. And then on Friday, of course, is the Griffith, uh stream, as usual, at 1 p.m. on the Lotro official uh, stream. But also, of course, we have our next session of the Silmarillion Film Project, which is on uh, now on, uh, on the new day and time on Thursday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern. So uh broadcasts every day the rest of the week here this week. This is uh, back to back to our normal schedule, so... Good to be back with everybody. Um, so um, here we go. All right. Um, and oh yeah, one other uh, one other one other announcement. So there is a rumor circulating around that I'm going to give a talk at uh, Weatherstock this year, um, which is super fun because I've never I confession I've never actually attended Weatherstock. Um, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, um, this is an annual gathering, uh, musical gathering in uh, in Lotro. So kind of, um, um, yeah. You know, so Weatherstock because it's on Weathertop. Uh, it's this large outdoor concert on Weathertop every year. Uh, so it's a it's a a big event in the annual calendar of the Locho community. Uh, so I'm going to be there on I think it's 6 p.m. on the 20th Saturday the 20th um, of uh, of July. So I'm going to be uh, looking forward to hanging out with folks at Weathertop a little bit. Um, it's uh, I've I've heard great things about Weatherstock. I've always meant to come. I've never had the chance to do it. So looking forward to joining folks there this year. Um, all right, uh, I think. Those are our announcements. Sorry, I had. Uh, I'm keep. I keep having this issue where, uh, like, my music keeps. I'm just go away, please. Oh, whew. yeah. The game music keeps like getting louder unexpectedly to me. Um, yeah, so it'll be streamed uh, on the Lotro official channel. So we won't be streaming that here on Signum's channel. We'll be streaming that on the official Lotro uh, channel. So, yeah, so that'll be July 20th, and it will be, um, uh, and of course, on the Langevall server, uh, for those of you who will be able to attend in-game. And uh, and I think 6 p.m. is when I'm going to be talking, but there are going to be stuff going on uh, throughout the day. So, um, anyway... All right, so just to uh, keep you guys abreast of some of the things going on, also the registration for our fall courses at Signum is up. You can just go to the signumuniversity.org webpage and you'll see there's a little thing there for uh, click, uh, linking you through to our uh, to our courses. So uh, that's uh, pretty exciting. Um, anyway, um, cool. So let me, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we did our reenactment at... Um, 
uh, uh, myth moods. Okay, so our class tonight is called a late arriving guest. Uh, we're gonna we're 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 meeting one of the great guests of honor. Of course, we met uh, Gandalf and Glorfindel and Elrond and looked at their descriptions. And Zephan twelve, I uh, your post uh, on the discussion board about that was really great. I think you're absolutely right. Zephan was saying was uh, making a parallel with the comment that the narrator of uh, the book The Little Prince makes about what. Uh, how you try to capture somebody, what is important about some someone or something in a description, right? And I do agree that Tolkien is much more interested in trying to capture the kind of intangibles of the characters. When he's describing somebody, he's much less interested uh, in the merely uh, sensible details, right? That is, those things that can be perceived by the senses and much more interested in intangibles, as we could see um, how the direction, especially the Glorfindel and the Elrond descriptions went, right? They got not just metaphorical, but uh, uh, they were... It, it, it's it's not even about how they were trying to capture things, right? Whether they were using metaphor, or whether they were just trying to, you know, use adjectives and descriptions, but rather what they were trying to capture, right? It's not just that it was only, like, using metaphor to capture the color of Elrond's hair, which it kind of was. Um, it's also that it kind of it went on from a comment which told us that he has dark hair uh, to, you know, trying to capture uh, some very uh, sort of, you know, much more kind of spiritual things about what it is like to, you know, see him and to be in his presence. Uh, so, and uh, so anyway, Zephan, I totally agree with you. I do think that that's exactly why Tolkien ends up leaving us with comparatively little physical description of his characters. Um yeah, Bruinier, that's a really good way to think about it, um, that um, uh, he seems more interested in how people feel about the other people, right, when they meet them. Yes, about sort of the the effect that meeting them has on the sort of point of view characters, right? Yes, I agree. We, we do see a little bit more of that. Uh, he's showing their quality, Tar Tarlonio. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's, uh, it's a chance for them to show their quality, absolutely. Um, uh, okay, um, let's um, then move on. So two things I wanted to touch on uh, in the notes and credit. I didn't copy and paste stuff tonight because first I wanted to give a report about the Flight to the Ford reenactment. Before I did anything else, I said during the, if you if you haven't seen the broadcast, uh, you can. It's on our Twitch channel. Uh, just go to the, the, the video archive from our Twitch channel and you'll be able to see the video. I streamed it. I apologize for my camera work as I was kind of doing a whole bunch. I was, I was broadcasting from my phone and uh, I was doing a whole bunch of things at once, directing people and talking and uh, shouting really loud. You can hear me lose my voice over the course of the thing. Um, anyway, so I, I apologize. I kind of did my best there. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, the I I'd promised in the broadcast that I would show my math. The, here's here here are the 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 numerical assumptions that I made that I didn't want to get into. Um, I did have to make some assumptions about the rates of speed in order to calculate the relative positions of people. Fortunately, I used you know Tolkien calls it a mile, right? And he may not in fact be giving a very precise linear measurement when he calls it a mile. He may by that just mean you know a long flat you know a long stretch. Um, however, for the purposes of our reenactment, we treated it as if it were indeed a mile, uh, from when they come through the arch to the fort. 
um, which actually, of course, made a lot of the calculations easier. So what we had the 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 primary way that we were calculating things is how many minutes per mile were each of the uh, sort of groups of characters going, right? So um, these are the numbers that we used. We calculated an eight-minute mile uh, for the hobbits. That's fairly slow. Uh, they have short legs. Um, so we're, there were a whole bunch of factors, you know, it's kind of uh, 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 bringing in here. Uh, you know, they have short legs and probably, you know, like... Uh, a fit, a fit, well-rested hobbit could probably run a mile substantially faster than eight minutes. But remember, uh, they were very weary. In fact, just a couple paragraphs before the flight to the Ford begins, uh, they're described as stumbling along in their weariness. So, however, there is adrenaline and they are also running downhill. So we didn't have them lagging too far down. Um, anyway, so... Uh, so the uh, so we we give the hobbits an eight minute mile when Aragorn and Glorfindel open it up and start sprinting on ahead. Um, we had them going at about a five minute mile, so that's about the pace of like an Olympic marathon runner, basically. Not a sprinter, right? But you know, covering distance, and they're both tired too, right? So anyway, so but but we figured Aragorn and Glorfindel under the circumstances were good for an Olympic uh, marathon pace at least uh, over the a little bit less than three quarters of a mile that they were sprinting. Well, almost half a mile, actually, that they were sprinting after the Witch King passed them by. Asphaloth, you'll remember that I said at the beginning of the video, we were one. this is one of the assumptions that we made. One of the assumptions that we made was that Asphaloth was not galloping full tilt at the very beginning. When, uh, when Gorfindel says, fly, fly, the enemy is upon us, the white horse leaps forward. So he's not just walking, right? He, he leaps forward. So he's, he's, he's clearly proceeding faster and leaving the pedestrians behind. Right. Um, but, uh, it was my theory that he is not, he's, he's going more like at a canter, not really at a full gallop yet, because when he proceeds at a gallop, Frodo notices the difference in his pace, right. In his gait. Um, so rather than it being like, he was galloping, but like not quite galloping quite as fast as he could go. I mean, and, and also Frodo reins him in comparatively easily, especially for somebody who is um, uh, not accustomed to riding a full-sized horse, right? So again, it's another thing that led me to suspect that Asphaloth is not galloping. Also, think about it from Asphaloth's point of view, right? Um, Glorfindel has said, fly, the enemy is upon us. Um uh, and uh, Asphaloth took off there, but, you know, Glorfindel's behind him and the, this dude on his back, like this tiny little dude who clearly doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, I'm thinking Asphaloth is going to be a little bit uncertain there at the beginning. And it's not until he receives the Neuralim order directly from Glorfindel that he puts his head down and gallops because now he knows exactly what his master wants of him. Uh, right. So anyway, so that's why I was theorizing he was going at a slower pace, uh, a good solid canter for uh, minutes to the mile, about 15 miles an hour. Uh, and then when he's galloping, I have him going at about 30 miles an hour, which is a very fast pace. Uh, so two minutes to the mile. The black horses, these are probably horses of Rohan, right? Some of those black horses that Aemir resents uh, having been stolen from them, as we talked about before. So they're probably fairly fast too, but they're going to be slower than Asphaloth, right? So I just kind of took the Asphaloth pace and added a little bit to it, right? So I'm figuring... You know, if they're if they if if they were running a mile race, 
Asphaloth would probably beat the Black Horses by something like 15 seconds, right, when he got to the end. Um, so those were the numbers that we used. So uh, if you look, if you watch the video, you know, I kind of broke it up into 30-second segments, right, freeze frame every 30, every 30 seconds, where is everybody, in order to figure out the spacings. Uh, and these are the numbers that I was basing um, that um, uh, calculation there. Um, okay, so... The the two things so I you know the, the of just to kind of brief review of the conclusions there um, you know I came into it with three questions which you know came from emerged from our discussions on the flight to the Ford one how far back were the you know I remember when we were talking about this I was like exactly you know Asvaloth has taken off right and they're on you know the, the the rest of them are following on foot when they're calling to Frodo and Gorfindel in particular right fly Frodo fly the enemy's upon us uh, no sorry that was that was the first one right right on. Frodo, right on, right is the is 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 the part, and then the neural limb. Um, how far apart were they? Right, I couldn't really, I wasn't clear on that, so we calculated it out based on these uh, rates. And according to that, they were a little, they were like three eighths of a mile away um, at the time when Gorfindel is shouting neural limb, which seemed to me plausible. I think that, that that seemed to be plausible. The second question was, you will recall, we discussed how long did they have, like, lighting a fire? Do, were they really able to, to light a fire? How would that go? And that actually was the thing that surprised me most. I'm going to be honest with you. My expectation, I was expecting to find that Tolkien might have kind of fudged the fire a little bit there. Um, that there, you know... When I was when we were thinking through it, I was like, you know what? I'm really not sure that um, uh, I'm really not sure that people are going to be a, that like there really would have been time to light a fire, uh, you know, and, unless we have to kind of imagine some kind of magic going on, right? Some some sort of you know instantaneous ignition of 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 a fire. But I found when we pasted out. Um, uh, when we, we when we paste it out, there's actually much more time than I expected. Based on these speeds, by the time the hobbits get to the ford, ready to pick up brands, Aragorn and Gorfindel had been there. They they, they beat them there by two minutes, um, because the hobbits are going slower. So Aragorn has two minutes to kindle fire. Remember, not build a fire, just kindle fire. Right. And there's a lot of it's 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 October. Right. There's going to be dead leaves and, uh, uh, you know, uh, bushes with, you know, dry leaves on them and everything. All he has to do is strike his tinder, use the tinder to light some like, you know, dying bush and, um, you know, sort of withering leaves. And then that's all they need. They don't need, you know, I have to I have to admit, I don't you know with them jumping out with firebrands. I had always imagined those as like parts of, you know, like things you might pull out of a campfire, like they might have pulled out of the fire at uh, Weathertop, right? But that's not necessarily what it means. It's fire itself that is effective against the Nazgul, not, you know, burning embers, not heat necessarily, right? Not long-sustained fire. Um, they just need, uh, uh, they just needed to, um, uh, to, to ignite flame, uh, yeah, exactly. Toromarthen set a, a a a withering shrubbery aflame, and then just tear off branches. And so, um, so you know, as I was working it out, I'm like, yeah, that's totally enough time for the hobbits to come down. They grab, you know, he hands them like, 
you know, branches full of dead leaves that are, you know, blazing up like a dead Christmas tree, right? And and holding those out in front of them and rushing towards the Nazgul. That's enough. That That's enough to satisfy the conditions that were described. And that seems to me completely plausible. I don't see any need to imagine a magical fire there. Um, nor do I think that... Um, nor do I think that there is any, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to the idea. Several people were suggesting that there were, you know, like a fire was sort of laid there uh, in advance, um, either by Glorfindel himself or by someone else. I'm not opposed to that idea. There may well be uh, fire making stuff there, but I don't think that can be relevant here because even if somebody had like left wood for a fire, uh, you know, like firewood for a fire, there's not time to ignite it. I mean, it's been out right in the elements for a couple of days it's not going to be dry enough and you can't ignite a log even if you're a ranger right you can't ignite even a dry log right set uh ready to go in 2 minutes right but again you can you can and and remember the verb in the book is if i'm recalling correctly is kindle right he kindled fire um and then you can set dead things aflame so uh anyway that i think uh, yeah tony gandalf could absolutely but gandalf's not there Right. Um, and but I, my point is not that it's impossible. Like, do I think it's absolutely impossible that Glorfindel could have magically created fr- flame? I don't know if that's within the capability of an elf lord like Glorfindel. It might well be for all I know. What I'm saying is I see no need for it. Um, I don't think that there is any reason. I don't think that the, the parameters of the text as it as it give us necessitate that. Right. I had been kind of thinking that something like that might be the only possible uh, way that it could be made to fit. But it um, it definitely uh, um, it definitely, I think, is very plausible under the circumstances. Um, the um, the third question about the Nazgul heading towards him. Um, I see a, a couple of you are wanting to quibble about that. Happy to see more discussion about this on the discussion board, if you like. Um, I, uh, I, I definitely found that the least conclusive of the three. Like the other two questions received pretty firm answers, I think, and um, uh, and and to me, I, I was wholly satisfied by those answers. Um, the um, the third one, why did the two Nazgul head straight towards Frodo, uh, which would seem, you know, impossible to actually enable them to catch him, uh, because they're taking the worst possible angle. Um, that seemed to me a little bit less conclusive. Um, and one of the problems there was uh, that I think that it would have been a little bit clearer, uh, had we had th- that, w- the scale was a little small for that. Um, I could wish that we had a larger, uh, we we were at a kind of a big enough scale, as large a scale as our yard space, uh, there for the reenactment would accommodate. Um, but, um, it's the one place I kind of wish our scale could have been a little bit larger. Um, I think that could have mapped it out a little bit more clearly, but still my primary, um, my primary focus there, or my, one of the conclusions that I have, I still, not for the same reasons, but just as I always did and continue to firmly reject the idea that the, you know, two Nazgul who remained at the edge of the Dell and Weathertop were doing so for tactical reasons. Um, I, I, I didn't believe that's the case. I argued against that and I still don't believe that's the case. I also don't think 
um, that uh, the two who are coming towards Frodo are trying to keep him from are trying to hurt him, right? Are trying to keep him from uh, from running from running side, to, you know, from dodging them. Because um, again, like that's, um, I see no, uh, I see no uh, benefit to the Nazgul to keeping him from running sideways. I mean, if they were going to try to do anything, they would try to push him sideways. Maybe you could argue that that's what they're doing, right? Coming in from the angle to try to get Frodo to veer off and ride south, right? Away from the ford. Maybe, right? They come in from one side. Um, the Well, at least JJ, they're described as all four emerging together as if they were all in one spot. Um, one of the things, of course, that we have to remember, and I don't know how much I talked, I can't remember how much I talked about this during the reenactment. Um, one thing that I think has to be the case, right, is that the four Nazgul who were lying in wait don't know that Frodo's going to be on a horse, and not just any horse, but on the elf horse of Glorfindel, right? Uh, he's going to be riding Asphaloth. That was clearly not in their brief. They're expecting a mostly wraithified hobbit on foot, right? So when they, they're seeing Asphaloth tearing towards the, uh, the, the ford at like 30 miles an hour from half a mile away, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, shoot, right? And they're taking off and they're trying to intercept him. Um, that is, that is, I mean, it ends up being a horse race and I do not, I cannot imagine that a horse race is what they were expecting, right? Um, so... One of the things that I think that we can definitely see them doing is sort of imp- imp- improvising, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, Katriana, I don't even, I don't want to touch Bakshi's flight to the Ford because I find Bakshi's flight to the Ford the trippiest, one of the trippiest parts of that whole film. Like I'm watching that and I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> We're in slow motion now and going backwards. And yeah, I totally, I cannot em- envision what is going on in that section of that film at all. Um, uh, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no, Matt, exactly. Right. Like just when they, just when you thought that the Nazgul report back to Sauron couldn't get more embarrassing, uh, right. No, yes. Yeah, boss, I swear. Like the came, he came in like on his elf horse. This, this guy was booking. We could not possibly have caught him. I was like, uh, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Hobbits riding elf horses. I'm sure that's right. Absolutely. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, no, it's it is uh, just like yet another piece of uh, uh, the embarrassing, uh, deeply embarrassing report that the Nazgul have to bring uh, to bring to bring home. Um, but anyway, so I still hold to the, you know, my, the theory that I had before. It, I, I won't say that I think my theory was proven by the reenactment, because I said I do think that the third question was the most inconclusive of the three at the reenactment. But I still hold to my theory that they're just trying to close the distance. They, they're just trying to get as close to Frodo. They know they can't catch him um, at the pace that he's going. They're leaving that to the other two. Um, but they're just trying to get as close to him as close as soon as possible uh, so that they can begin to do their sort of wraith whammy on him as they do. Um <laughs> Dora Marthen points out that the hobbits not only have an elf horse, they also have a shrubbery. Absolutely. Yeah. Burning shrubbery, presumably. So yeah, no, this is, um, um, uh, this is, uh, a big deal. Um, okay. Um, so, 
right. So those and it, it, those of you who haven't watched it can still watch the reenactment of the flight to the Ford. It was great fun. People were asking, "What are we going to reenact it? Mythmoot next year?" I don't know. Seating arrangements at the Council of Elrond, maybe. I'm not sure we're going to be any further than that. Perhaps something will arise. Um, you know, we have had these sort of uh, uh, genuine questions from the text, which have been answerable by a forensic reenactment. We've had two occasions for that so far, and I have felt that I have learned a great deal from both such reenactments. Uh, so, um, you know, we'll see. We will see what arises next uh, in, uh, in, 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 in trying to figure things out. Um, the second point I wanted to make just briefly, because uh, he wrote a really wonderful uh, long post on this. Uh, 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 kudos to Zephin12 for taking up my request to do an analysis of the use of the word fair. Uh, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, which is used a bunch of times. It's used like almost 200 times uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, And by his analysis, it is almost every time it is used to mean beautiful rather than... And he only counted three occasions when it clearly meant blonde or pale-skinned. Like, just blonde, where it is merely an item of description rather than uh, an accolade of beauty. Now, one of the things which, and uh, Marie uh, Prosser was mentioning this in her, one of her comment, in, in her comment and response, it is very noticeable, right? And Zephan, uh, uh, you know, observed the same thing uh, during his analysis. It is very noticeable when you look at the people, especially the women, uh, who are called fair most often uh, in The Lord of the Rings, they all happen to be blonde, Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, it is, it is interesting. And, and one of the conclusions that, uh, uh, that, that Zephan pointed out, um, was that, um, uh, the, the Tolkien does show an affinity for using the word in more than one sense. Um, so it, it does seem that, I, I mean, I, I can't think it's a coincidence that Eowyn, is the person in the Lord of the Rings who is called fair more often, right? She is also possibly the most blonde of everyone too. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, see, cause Matt Violinus, that's the interesting thing. Arwen is only called fair once, twice, very, very, very rarely is that word applied to her, right? Or Luthien uh, in the Lord of the Rings text. Now, you know, Luthien, hardly gets as much stage time as Eowyn does, right? So it's obviously not exactly a one-to-one comparison as far as opportunities. But um, but still, yeah, they, they um, Arwen gets called it once and Luthien twice. Yeah. Um, so it is kind of noticeable uh, that those who are not fair in the descriptive sense uh, are also not called fair in the beauty sense. Uh, more often, Zeph and I love your point that the, the word fair is more often paired with the adjective with with the color green, um, like a a a fair green, uh, you know, valley or something like that. Um, that uh, fair is, is 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 paired with green more often than it's paired with gold or blonde. Actually, um, in the text, that's um, that's interesting. Um, but um, but yeah, no, exactly, Scudo. We don't get many descriptions of Arwen, right? So uh, it's 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 not exactly a fair comparison. But as I say. It also hardly seems like a coincidence that, you know, all of the top um, beautiful ladies um, 
are uh, disc- are also also happen to be blonde. Uh, Zephan, I was also thinking of your your footnote on the Fairbairns, right? Um, uh, the Fairbairns, but that seems to me another example, right? Um, the Fairbairns uh, are, of course, the name of Sam's descendants. The uh, the you know the the, the new family of uh, Eleanor Gamgee as was right. Um, and the fair barons, which does mean like beautiful children, essentially, right? Um, but I, yes, Eleanor is beautiful, but also blonde, right? And you'll remember that beautiful children, but also blonde beautiful children were one of the trends of that season, right? Many of the children who were born in that year had fair hair, which was unusual, right? Had blonde hair, which was unusual. Uh, so again, like that, once more, we see that coupling, this, um, but again, this seems to me, Zephan, as you've observed, to be sort of Tolkien's penchant for using that word in uh, more than one sense. My my sense of it there is that it's not that Tolkien is saying they were blonde and therefore they were beautiful. My sense is that Tolkien is wants to describe that they are beautiful. And since they are blonde, he tends to have a preference to use the word fair to describe. He is he is more likely to reach for the word fair uh, to describe someone who is both beautiful and blonde, right? Than he is to describe someone who is beautiful but not blonde. Not that he doesn't or wouldn't use that word because he does sometimes. Um, but that's where I suspect the kind of influence comes, right? That it. I don't know, in some way, sort of because of that double sense, feels like a sort of more appropriate um, word there. Um, anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> Matt Violinist is, and, and Tora Marthen are wondering, uh, is there an analogous word uh, for us poor brunettes? <laughs> Tony Mead suggests voluptuous. No, 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 that, that's not, that's not the right one. <laughs> <laughs> Tony is thinking of Dracula, of course. Uh, no, no. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. No, so, Fort Thoughtless, okay, so the interesting thing about that, uh, I was asking about uh, describing blonde-haired men. No, um, the two uh, highest rank, the two men who are called fair most often were Legolas and Boromir, uh, actually. So there's no, the, the correlation between beauty and blondness in people who are called fair um, works for women, but doesn't seem to work for men, actually. So, it's not that the word is never used of men. It's used less, less often, um, but it's, but it's, but, uh, but it is just still used for men, but it doesn't seem to correlate with hair color to the same extent. So, anyway, um, uh, but, and so, thank you. Zephan for uh, so that the 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 big the sort of number one takeaway is it is pretty clear that the word fair means beautiful the vast majority of the time there may be this sort of echoing second uh, uh, second sense in which like it is also evoking the fairness of uh, the fairness of hair color especially um, but that's clearly not the dominant I mean again one of Zephan's points was it's used to describe landscape almost as much as it, I think Zephan, I don't remember the proportions. What's the proportion of the number of time it's used to describe a landscape uh, compared to just to describe a person. Um, 
where, of course, in describing landscapes, it's it's never about blondness, right? And always merely about beauty. And that comes up uh, a very great deal. So uh, anyway, th- th- I, I, I appreciate that. I feel... Uh, I feel confident now when we when we encounter the word fair, and of course I'll be paying attention to that as we um, uh, as we go through. Okay, but let us get back to the text. So we did Gandalf, Glorfindel, uh, Elrond, and now the latecomer in the middle of the table, against the woven cloths upon the wall. There was a chair under a canopy, and there sat a lady fair to look upon. And so like was she in form of womanhood to Elrond, that Frodo guessed that she was one of his close kindred. Young she was, and yet not so. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of the stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance, as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Above her brow her head was covered with a cap of silver lace, netted with small gems, glittering white, but her soft grey raiment had no ornament, save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undomio, for she was the even star of her people. Long she had been in the land of her mother's kin, in Lorien, beyond the mountains, and was but lately returned to Rivendell to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladon and Elrohir, were out upon errantry, for they rode often far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Okay. Um, So, one thing to note about this passage, I think, didn't I... Okay, so I'm having the problem I so often have where I can't remember what class I said this in. Did I leave you guys the last time we talked with a promise to do a defense of Arwen this time? Did I say I was going to do that? Is it Was it this class that I was going to do that? Or was it, it was this class? Okay. All right, let me do my defense of Arwen. Um, Arwen sometimes gets a bad rap. There are a lot of people who don't like Arwen, right? And in some, for many, for many readers... Um, uh, for many readers, Arwen is kind of a blemish on Tolkien's female character record, right? That is, um, I'm sure you have all heard or participated in arguments that went exactly this way, right? That starts with, there are so few female characters in Tolkien, right? And then you say... Ah, true, in a sense, uh, by numbers, right? But the female characters that they are are really awesome, right? Uh, look at look at Eowyn, look at Luthien. Um, and then the other person says, yeah, but Arwen, right? Um, here we have this sort of central figure, and, like, what does she do? She's, like, just this, like, untouchable, beautiful figure in the background who never speaks, Right in the whole fellowship of the right, you know, they meet her here. When she speaks, she finally gets a line of dialogue in the Return of the King. Right, um, one line of dialogue. Um, she only exists to like 
you know, marry Aragorn at the end. She comes in and is like a trophy wife at the end. Uh, and then meanwhile, she's off being like aloof and beautiful. Right. And then we find out what has she been doing? Like, what's her contribute? What's her own, the only contribution that she makes to the War of the Ring? She sews. Exactly. Right. She, she's, she's been home embroidering uh, the flag. Right. Um, obviously, I'm kind of downplaying. Right. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm articulating the argument, the anti Arwen argument. Right. As it as it generally goes. Um, I know the banners. I love how you guys are all leaping to defend Arwen. I get it. I get it. No, I'm not. I'm not saying this is my argument. I'm saying this is how it usually goes. Right. And you guys uh, often. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I'm sure have heard this same kind of thing. So. That's the argument that I wanted to respond to. I'm not trying to defend it. I, I want to respond to it. And the primary thing that I would say about this is like we have to it's it's super important uh, to remember the context. Right. Uh, and by the context, I don't mean like the historical or social context. I don't mean Tolkien being a person of his times or anything like that. All I mean is the context of the um the context of the the composition of the Lord of the Rings, right? Arwen is a super super late idea. Um, to, uh, Arwen, there's there's a reason she's barely in the text, and that's because she got shoehorned in literally at the last second. Um, as we've seen, as we've been going through the history of the Lord of the Rings in the Mythgard Academy, which has been awesome, and I'm kind of sad that we're getting towards the end of it now. Um, but as we've been going through that, one of the things that we've seen is that the whole, the character of Aragorn, his backstory, the history of the Numenorians in Middle-earth, and the, the, the role of his plotline, right, of the Return of the King plotline um, in The Lord of the Rings, is one of the elements that was, like, most unanticipated, Right. You know, if you look, if you think from the point of view of the the book title that Frodo gives to the thing right at the end, when he when he finishes the book, right, of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king as seen by the little people, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, The way that he pairs those things right of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king. Right. Those are like the two subjects of the book. So those are the two primary stories, according to Frodo. Right. The downfall of the Lord of the Rings is the story from the moment that Frodo and Pippin and Sam, though they weren't the three at the time, of course, uh, as, as all of you will remember, Odo was there, of course, the uh, indefatigable, irrepressible Odo. Um, when, as soon as they ditch into the bushes and this black horse comes riding out and this black rider is there sniffing and nobody knows who he is, as soon as the black rider rides onto the stage the story of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings begins, right? And so from that moment, which is fairly early on in Tolkien's process, he had, you know, he was developing the story of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings, and he had um, uh, lots of, you know, there lots of things changed about it along the way, but, I mean, he knew Frodo was going to take the ring to Mount Doom and destroy it at Mount Doom. Like, that was the story from the beginning, there's a lot that had to be worked out along the way, but that's the plot that he saw clearly, right? That was the A plot of the story. The Return of the King was not a glimmer, right? I mean, not only was the king in question still a, you know, 
living uh, a, a hobbit living rough and wearing wooden shoes at first. But the, I mean, the whole story, I mean, it is not, it, it, the story is pretty far advanced when it's not even like inevitable that Aragorn is going to uh, 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 take the kingship or be accepted as king. I mean, it's, it's again, that's a, that's a late developing storyline. Um, so it's only when we get to the very end um, that, uh, that Aragorn uh, is crowned, right? And he needs a wife, right? Uh, and the wife that he gets is the daughter of Elrond, and the daughter of Elrond is invented for the occasion, first called Finduilas and then changed to Arwen and Domiel, um, almost immediately. Finduilas, of course, kept on as the name of Faramir's dead mom. But, um, so now, Fourth Dauntless, I hear you. Uh, I hear you when you say, I'm not sure she was at it at the last minute as a great defense to the claim that Arwen is a shallow and poorly developed character. Um, it is not an, a, def- uh, a defense against the claim that she is a poorly developed character. She is a poorly developed character. There is no question about it. There was not room to develop her. But that's the point, right? The point is that she is not... So, so it's not a defense against that. Because again, that's, that's, undef- that's, that's undeniable. I don't think that any defense can be made. I don't think any argument can be really made that Arwen in the text of the Lord of the Rings is not an underdeveloped character, right? She is an underdeveloped character, like no question, right? She is clearly, um, objectively speaking, right? But, um, yes, spiritual boulders, that Finduilas, the one that the, the elf uh, lady that, uh, who, who was in love with Turin, she's the one. The one who gets pinned to a tree? Yep, her. Anyway, um, so yeah, she is an underdeveloped character. The point is, when people take that as like, this is what, you know, basically, the people who want to build, you know, some variant of the Tolkien is a misogynist argument, right? Um, And and, and that's unfair, uh, but, but just, you know, categorically, right? You know, the people who want to point to the way that Tolkien depicts women you know, as an illustration of, you know, Tolkien, if not being anti-woman, then, um, you know, uh, you know, depicting a, uh, a very male dominated world. Um, anyway, the way that Arwen is employed by those people to me doesn't work. Right. Um, because she, she does not represent Tolkien's ideal, but it's hard, right? I mean, Tolkien opened himself up, to this, right? Um, he had a choice. He had a, he, he he had a choice to make at the past the eleventh hour, right? It was like eleven eleven forty five on the clock. Uh, it's the last second, right? And he's deciding. Okay, I want Aragorn to get married. I need to give him a wife. I need to retcon. I don't have much time. I don't have much space. So he has he he, he has a choice, right? He makes a choice. Do I go back and do like an emergency retcon of Aragorn's wife into the story, knowing that she's not going to be able to be a developed character, that she's not going to be able to play a significant, significant role in the plot, right? Or do I not, right? And he chooses to do so. He chooses to do so and leave her underdeveloped and therefore leave himself open to a feminist critique that says Arwen is like, you know, his ideal of... The, you know the, that the ideal of the female in the Lord of the Rings, as evidenced by Arwen, is like distant and 
sewing and and you know only just there to be a trophy wife uh for the men like you know that he left himself open to that by the choice that he made here's what i want to focus on uh what i want to focus on is why did he make that choice why was it worth it why was it worth it to have a little bit of arwen right um and again when i say i i i i I always say I should stop asking why questions, and I never do. When I say why, I'm not trying to get inside Tolkien's brain and guess what he was thinking. Uh, What I'm saying is, what is the function of that, right? What do we gain? We can see the cost, I think, right? We can see the cost is having a very underdeveloped character who feels that many people respond to Arwen saying, I don't like Arwen. She seems shoehorned into the text, probably because she was shoehorned into the text, Right? Absolutely shoehorned into the text. Um, that's the cost of including our... But what's the benefit? Right? Um, <laughs> we get a wedding. That's true, Karina. We get a wedding, and that's really important. Um, uh, I... Right. How does it serve the text? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a better way to ask it, Lincoln. Um, my answer is, as a couple of you are, are, are uh, thinking about also, Luthien, right? It's about Luthien. Um, the fact that he can... So, this is one of the mind-blowing things, right? Remember that when we were looking at the passage where Aragorn says, I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio, right? And I was telling you this story from... The you know how I believe that that is the moment right when he wrote that sentence I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio, um, in the the first time he wrote that in a draft that that was the turning point of Tolkien's entire career like his entire story world um, came together at that moment when he when he had Trotter say I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio that's when the integration the full integration of his world Hobbit. Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion all came together and the, his world achieved, you know, in that moment. Uh, and from there on out, uh, the depth and the beauty that we see him give to it. And it started with the story of Tenuvio as told by Trotter, who wasn't even human at the time when he, st- when he first said that. But he becomes human and he becomes the Numenorean king in exile, kind of. Uh, eventually, he, he, he becomes that. Um... When we read now, right, especially when we reread The Lord of the Rings, right, um, we um, we come to his song of the tale of Tenuvio, right, and then his prose synopsis afterwards. And knowing, in retrospect, right, um, when we're reading the book for the second time, we know about his relationship with Arwen. Right? We know that he is in love with Arwen and that they have this long, though untold, within the text of the Lord of the Rings. I know it's in the appendix, but it's in the appendix, right? Um, untold within the text of the Lord of the Rings love affair with Arwen, right? That stretches back years. Knowing this, when we come to that passage again on Weathertop for the second time, it is impossible, right? It is impossible to see, not to see the parallel, right? To see... Aragorn and Arwen, Baron and Luthien, uh, in peril. To see this as, um, you know, as, uh, and I, I, I forgot who was talking about it in these terms, um, 
uh, yeah, uh, mad violinist. Um, it's a very satisfactory conclusion to the Elder Days narratives. Yes, the way that he ties the end of this latter story back with the great story of the earlier days. Um, we see... Baron and, the story of Baron and Luthien is kind of percolating up through the Lord of the Rings sort of increasingly as we go through, right? Again, it kind of it had that crucial moment there with I Will Tell You the Tale of Tenuvio. But we get it. Remember, we get it, we get it in Frodo, right? We, Frodo and his ring being, you know, his finger being bitten off. He's kind of like Baron, except less because he's only lost a finger instead of a hand, right? Though Sam emphasizes, you know, draws our attention to this by saying he would rather have Gollum taken a whole hand of his rather. Um, uh, anyway, it, it, it keeps it keeps coming through, right? The, remember the stairs of Carathungol, right? There's there's um, the Baron and Luthien story, but then finally. Right, um, it emerges into the, the you know the the full and sort of its full typological beauty, right? With Aragorn and Arwen being this final union, uh, uh, echoing the first union, you know, echoing back to Baron and Luthien. Um, Aragorn being the second Baron, her being the second Luthien. Uh, this being the fit closing, uh, you know, the sort of the fit conclusion, right, uh, of the Elder Days as the Elder Days are transitioning into the into the Younger Days. That works so well, right? That is, I, I this seems to be, uh, this is what we gain, right? This is what we, so yes, the cost is a shoehorned in Arwen who is not a player in the story, right? Who doesn't have a role because all roles have already been given out, right? The story's already been written. Um, but, but, but we'd gain something, right? And the thing that we gain doesn't just give us a really satisfying ending of the story, as it does conceptually, right? Um, the met- the wedding of Ar- Arwen and Aragorn is satisfying in an interest in a, in, a, in a different kind of way, right? It's it's satisfying not in the way that, I mean often like think about how. Weddings at the end of Shakespeare plays usually satisfy, right? They usually satisfy because, you know, we've sort of had these two characters and seen these two characters through the entire trajectory of the play, and then we come to the end and they get married, right? Um, so, we, you know, the, the marriage is sort of the, the, the logical and satisfying final step most of the time. We could talk about Shakespeare another time. Anyway, the logical and satisfying final step of their, of their arcs, of their stories, right? It's not that kind of satisfying. Ar- Aragorn's wedding is not that kind of satisfying because Arwen doesn't have an arc, right? I mean, there's there, there's not enough of her um, uh, to have an arc. Um, but it's satisfying in a different way. It's like archetypally satisfying. It's like conceptually satisfying. It is, you know, her, the union between Aragorn and the daughter of Elrond, who is Arwen Undomio, like Luthien, uh, you know, the, the, likeness, the likeness of Luthien come again, who recapitulates Luthien's choice, right? Choosing mortality to join herself to Aragorn. It's conceptually so beautiful, right? Um... That um, anyway, I, 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 to me, it's worth it. Totally worth it. So that that's my defense of Arwen. Not that she's a you know. I'm not trying to argue that she's a fully developed character. She's not. But I would argue that what we gain from having, you know, sort of the shadow of Arwen looming over the text rather than a fully developed character incorporated into it, um, uh, I think that what we gain 
definitely outweighs um, what we what we lose. And yeah, Tony, I agree. The mythic symbolism of the even star, right? You know, uh, thinking of the uh, you know the significance of the star in so many ways, right? I mean, like you just start thinking about that, right? The connection between even star and you know the star of high hope, which is of course our grandfather, and you know Sam's vision of the star. I mean, so many things, right? So many things. Um, uh, the, the way that this comes together and, and again provides this richly sort of intellectually and spiritual satisfying concept of the end of the third age and the you know the the transition uh, out of the elder days it's excellent right I mean again so I, I find what we gain to me so much outweighs what we lose um, by having this underdeveloped female character there um, that I'm, I'm, I, so that, so that's why I like Arwen. I am wholly in support of Arwen because I think, I think we profit so much, uh, from having her there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Matt, I agree. The wedding of, uh, the wedding to a high transcendent, beautiful fairy maiden also elevates Strider to Aragorn. Um, he remains the guy trudging uh, to, uh, uh, th- th- through the swamp to the hobbits, but to everyone else, he is the king who has returned. It gives him a mythic edge. I absolutely agree um, that. Um, uh, and someone was talking about the the way that it it made his story sort of fit the kind of fairy tale uh, archetype uh, more as well. Yeah, um, I mean, differently, of course, than Baron and Luthien does. I mean, the Baron and Luthien story, as it's articulated in the poem. Um, you know, in the song that Aragorn sings and the song uh, upon which that's based is, um, is uh, 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 you know, a really fascinating reversal of traditional fairy tale motifs. But yes, um, the kind of the way in which, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Matt, just as you were suggesting, that marriage serves as this like mythic capstone on, El- on Aragorn's career. Right. It is he's been crowned. Right. His the return of the king is is official, right? He has achieved the the status that you know again like sort of mythically you'd think that we need him to be right, and yet there's still another level to come, right? And that is when we now come back to the elder days, right? To the old world. Um, he's awesome enough, or almost awesome enough. Right, just to be the king who has returned, and to see him there in judgment and showing showing uh, both justice and mercy to Baragond, and I mean that you know, it's almost enough, right? Or it would have been enough. I would have been satisfied with that, right? But then this final mythic um, coping stone that Tolkien puts on it, right? That we have uh, um, the 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 parallel with Baron and Luthien, and the 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 closing of the of the elder days, just, um, just fantastic. So, um, anyway, that's, that's my defense of Arwen. Um, and I, to me, it, it's, it, it makes it, um, definitely sort of sufficiently, uh, satisfying. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, Oh, JJ, that's one of my favorite lines. Yes. Aemir is the second Lancelot. Oops. Aemir is the second Lancelot. Yes. Uh, I can't wait till we get to talk about that. It'll be a while, but we'll get there. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, 
Let's see. Uh, oh, I just wanted to. Was it uh, Fourth Dallas? Was it you who was talking about? Who was talking about Jackson's adaptation or perspective adaptation? Um, yeah, Fourth Dallas, it was you. Uh, it was saying after this discussion, I'm feeling more sympathetic with Jackson's temptation to write Arwen into the battle at Helm's Deep. Yes, I agree. Um, and you know, I. I have to say that this is another example. There are uh, several examples of this. Um, a lot of times when Jackson, not all the time, goodness knows, but many times, especially in the Hobbit films, when Jackson departs from the text, he does so in a way which is not in line with what Tolkien wrote, but is in line either with the way that Tolkien thought about things or, even more often, the kind of thing that Tolkien didn't write, but because he didn't get a chance to, right? Um, what the primary example, of course, I'm thinking of is the way that the the the, the way that the Hobbit films are framed, right? Uh, trying to retell the story of the Hobbit from the point of view of the War of the Ring, knowing everything that you know. If Tolkien had written the uh, the Hobbit as an actual prequel to the Lord of the Rings, right? Knowing the Lord of the Rings and everything that happened in it, um, how would that have been different and how would that have been framed differently? Uh, fascinating thing. But yes, the question of what would have, what if, right? What if Tolkien had come up with the idea of Arwen earlier, early enough to include her in the narrative? What role would she have had? I can't believe. I, I It is... Again, you know, we can only speculate, right? We, know, we can only guess about this, really. But if I had to guess, I do not think that Tolkien would have left her in a completely passive uh, role. I don't think he would have left her back home in Rivendell sewing. I think she would have been involved. Remember, the primary focus of her character, the like justification for shoehorning her in is the parallel with Luthien, who was not a stay-at-home type, right? If, you know, if if the likeness of Luthien has come again, if she's gotten even a fraction of Luthien's spunk, then there's no way that she is going to stay home and sew the whole time, right? Um, so I, yeah, I definitely think that um, Arwen, had he conceived, fully conceived of Arwen uh, in her you know, sort of neo-Luthian role from the beginning, I think she would have played a much more significant role. I don't know what exactly, what roles would he have given her, right? How would that have changed the trajectory of the story? I really don't know. Um, uh, yeah, Mike, I have to say, I think the most likely, in, in, again, in my opinion, if I'm speculating, right, in my opinion, um, I think she comes down with the Grey Company. I can't imagine her staying home. Again, like the Luthien type, she's not gonna. She's gonna. She's gonna. She's gonna come down, right? What would she do? She would be riding with Aragorn through the paths of the dead. In that case, right? How would Tolkien have handled that? Would he have done? You know, what what exactly there would her role have been? Would there have been? Would he have gone further with the parallel? Remember, Luthien is. 
she doesn't just go riding out to help out, right? Or, you know, she's not just Baron's plus one on his journey by any stretch, right? Uh, she comes out to pull his biscuits out of the fire. So, I, I, you know, would he have placed her in a role like that? Would he have given her a rescuing role at some point, right? Um, maybe in the battle. Maybe. I, 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 I don't even know, right? I have no idea what it would be. Um, but honestly... Um, you know, when we are thinking about, again, back to Jackson's, uh, cause you know, for those, I'm sure you know, all of you know, uh, that Peter Jackson actually filmed, uh, you know, Liv Tyler as Arwen at Helm's Deep. Like he wanted to, he wanted, you know, she was leading the elf force that came to Helm's Deep, uh, in like the very first concept, uh, of the Helm's Deep battle. Um, and eventually he was prevailed upon to not do that. Because Tolkien fans would have been up in arms about it. Now, I think that's absolutely correct. Tolkien fans would have been up in arms about that. But I'm not sure that I think Tolkien fans would have been wholly justified in being uh, up in arms about that. Because you know what? I can totally see uh, a Luthien parallel doing that, right? The, here's Aragorn pinned in by, you know, hopeless forces at Helm's Deep. And the Luthien figure shows up to help rescue him. Heck yeah, that works for me, right? Again, I'm not saying I, I wish he had done it, but I'm saying, do I think conceptually it's defensible? Absolutely, I think it's defensible. Um, if we're asking the speculative question, what role would he have given her in the story had he had time to give her a role, like a real role? Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, you know, Blue Wizard, I do think it likely that Jackson would have ended up with something more like Xena Warrior Princess uh, had she... And yeah, I mean, by all accounts, she was... Um, you know, doing lots of sword fighting, you know, at uh, the the scenes in the Battle of Helm's Deep that they were shooting. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that would have been awesome. I'm not saying that. And I, you know, and I'm not saying that that's how um, they would have. Uh, um, I would have liked it to come out. I'm just saying, again, conceptually, the idea of her coming there uh, is, um, um, is. Is, you know, an interesting to me. I mean, that seems to me plausible as a, uh, a route that they could go. Um, but, um, anyway, anyway, um, so, um, good. All right. Um, I have taken this time to do my aside on Arwen because I will get very few opportunities to do that. Uh, and this is a, you know, one of the, this is one of the cool things, right? This passage of text that I read a while back, right? And we're ta and we're, we are, have begun talking about, and are going to talk about more, um, uh, is one of the last passages written in the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, he, this, you know, there were only a few passages that he had to go back and like write from scratch and insert, uh, in those final stages of revision, right? This is one because he came up with the Arwen character, Way and Minas Tirith, right, wrote her into many, many partings, right, and then had to go back. And so this passage, when she is seen from afar um, uh, in uh, many meetings, is one of the um, 
is one of the places that he had to go back and rewrite. So this is some of the latest text uh, of the Lord of the Rings, uh, which is uh, kind of uh, kind of interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Flamifer likes to think of her being the banner. Um, see, Flamifer, that's why I think my, that, that's why I would vote for her being in the Grey Company and coming with him on the paths to the de- uh, the paths of the dead, because um, that's one of the other things that he inserts. Right when you when you like list, and it's not a long list. Right, list the the passages of text he had to go back and insert or rework in order to like put the concept of Arwen at all into the story that he'd already written. The banner, of course, is one of the other places where we see it, right? One of the other passages he needed to alter in order to do it. So, Flamifer, you can say, right, this gives evidence that when he's thinking, okay, I want Arwen to be involved somehow in this story, right? I don't have time to rework the whole thing and introduce her her actual character to the story, but I want to give her a place. So where, what, what's his go-to moment? Paths of the Dead. Right, Stone of Erech is uh, is where he has her presence felt. Right at the unfurling of the banner that she made. Uh, so, does that suggest that had he had time, he would include her in that? I don't. It doesn't prove it by any stretch, but uh, that's that's why Flamifer. I would I would uh, I would sort of vote for that. Um, aha, Belongsmond, you're right. Her father was a herald, right? So he uh, would have borne the banner for Gilgalad. So that's an interesting kind of parallel there, actually. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, anyway, yeah. So Lilith, as for why he didn't write her in sooner, it just simply she I, she didn't come up. Like he didn't think of her. Um, as often happens, you know, he only sort of sees things when they arise, right? And she didn't arise until the wedding. So he was, you know, 95% of the way done with the story and then was like, you know, Aragorn, right? No, he should marry someone. Boom. Elf, princess, Arwen's daughter. Bam, there she is. But story was written already when he saw that. So, yeah. Um, uh and that, and again, the reason it makes sense to me, like the fact that he was already thinking of the El, of the elder days with Elrond and and, Glor, and Glorfindel, doesn't to me uh, make it likelier that he should have foreseen Arwen earlier on. Because remember, it's only because it was Aragorn's story um, itself that was growing and developing. Right? It wasn't until Aragorn's story got to that point. Even in the first draft of the Steward and the King chapter, the full like archetypal grandeur of Aragorn's uh, uh, coronation isn't there. There are still implications in that first draft that there's some political uncertainty about whether or not the people of Minas Tirith are going to accept Aragorn as king. Um, uh, the symbolism of the first draft of the coronation suggests this, um, that Aragorn and Imrahil and, and uh, uh, Faramir are a little bit worried that there might be political division, and so they do this Symbol is, you know, this symbolic show of how Imrahil and Farahir, Faramir are totally behind Farahir. Faramir and Imrahil are totally behind Aragorn, uh, which again suggests that even then the whole full archetypal weight of the returning king had not yet been laid upon Aragorn, right? So even then, in the first draft of his coronation, 
it's still not fully developed, right? And so that's why, again, the queen, she doesn't come up yet because she's part of that final flowering of the the Return of the King story, right? Um, but anyway, um, yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, um, so yeah, that's that's where I would place it in in thinking the thinking through the uh, uh, mythology there. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, it's not quite time for the field trip yet, Tony. I know you guys are teasing me for not getting through one slide here, but again, this is an important aside uh, that I wanted to make sure that we uh, uh, that we that we talked about. Um, so, okay, let's go back to. Uh, let's go back to her description, thinking in the context of, because we still have time to talk about her description here some, uh, which, you know, we will remember, of course, the descriptions of, of the other three that we were just looking at last time. Um, first of all, notice how she is set aside. She is given a place of honor, um, but it's a different place from Elrond. You'll remember that the context of the three uh, you know, revealed, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, uh, lords, um, there at the, t- you know, Elrond and then Glorfindel and Gandalf sitting on his right and left hand, right? They have the authority. They are in the place of, uh, of, of, of honor in one sense, right? The position of authority, dignity and power. That's the phrase. Thank you. Belongs bond. Um, the, the the lords of dignity and power are there at the head of the table. The head of the table and on his right and left hand, right? And then here's Arwen in the middle of the table. Not because she only is more important than 50% of the people at the table, though, clearly, right? Because she is set aside and highlighted uh, very differently, right? Because um, her she is in a chair under a canopy, um, against the woven cloths upon the wall. Um, so it's almost like she's set back from the table. She is depicted in this sort of throne-like um, uh, position, right? It's not just like seating at the head of the table. It's like she's not even at the table. Uh, she is at a throne overlooking the table, right? Um, and that, again, I think is um, uh, is interesting, is important, right? I think that's important in understanding um, uh, the, exactly like like a queen or a dignified visitor or ambassador, uh, Gilgonthir, I agree. I'm not sure if I'd say more like a, more like a guest than a resident, exactly. Certainly a different... Um, kind of um, resident, right? Again, she's she's being singled out, right? But she is being treated um, she is being treated like a queen here. A queen among those who are present. Not just, I mean, of course, a bunch of this description is from Frodo's point of view, right? And to me, the sentence in this passage that always jumped out to me most was so it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen, right? Um, that is um, the 
I, I, that that always jumped out at me most, right? The way in which we are given this kind of context, um, the fact, like the moment when, um, the moment when Frodo lays eyes on Arwen for the first time, right, is like a momentous occasion, right? Clearly for Frodo, um, but there's almost even a sense in which, like, for the sake of the story, right, like. In the history of the Third Age of of of, of Middle Earth, this moment is a really weighty and important moment. Um, but again, the point that I'm making here, initially, is that she is set aside not just a Frodo. It's not just like he stands out among the crowd in his eyes, right? She is set apart and set apart in a position of relative honor. Compared, there are presumably other elf damsels in the place, right? Um, uh, but she is in a special place here. Um, uh, and, uh, um, this is, uh, uh, and so she is being, she is, does seem to be treated like a queen, uh, in the house of Elrond. Um, there sat a, f- a lady fair to look upon. Here's a, there's our, there's Arwen's one fair, right? Fair to look upon. And so like was she in form of womanhood to Elrond, that Frodo guessed that she was one of his close kindred. Young she was, and yet not so. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost, her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes, grey as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked. So let's, first of all, notice the structure of our sentence here, right? Um, We have one long sentence to start. In the middle of the table, against the woven cloths upon the wall, so we get two um, prepositional phrases, right, which explain where she was. There was a chair. That's our subject and verb, right? There was a chair under a canopy, and there sat a lady fair to look upon, and so like was she in the form of womanhood to Elrond that Frodo guessed that she was one of his close kindred, right? Um, it's a very stately sentence, right? Which goes into the uh, sort of paratactic syntax that I've talked about before on other occasions, those clauses that are strung together with ands, and there sat a lady fair to look upon, and so like was she, right? Then we get a short sentence, Young she was, and yet not so. As if that sentence is... That's like the abstract for the essay that's about to come, right? Uh, here's, what you, here's what you need to hold on to, right? Here's what's important about her. Um, young she was, and yet not so. Okay, so now we're going to try to capture what that means. Um, the first impression. She's young. She looks young. But at the same time, she doesn't just look young. Right? She does not look like a child. Um, so these two concepts, that she looks young is the primary concept, but the secondary, but there's something else other than just youth there, right? Are the things that we're you know that we're gonna try to capture. And I agree, I think that this is Frodo writing this. Um, that Frodo's gonna try to capture here in the next long sentence. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Independent clause. Right. Semic. So, okay. So notice what we get is a negative description, right? 
Um, that is to say, we're told positively that her hair is dark, right? So we, we get, we receive a piece of information about what she does look like. But the focus of that first clause is negative, right? What she does not look like. That is, okay, so young she looked and yet not so. Okay, wait, what do you mean she wasn't young? Did she look old in some way, right? And so what the next sentence tries to capture is she does not look old, right? Um, the braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Okay, so no gray hairs. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth. Okay, so it's not her face or her skin that looks not young either, right? Um, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes. Gray as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance, as of one who has known many things that the years bring. That's a long sentence, and not only is it long, it's strange. Syntactically, it's strange. Um, It's divided by, what is it, one, two semicolons, right? So the sentence is divided into three parts. Three separate independent clauses joined together by semicolons. But within those semicolons, we get multiple clauses. The first one is simple. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth. Oh, wait, sorry. The braids of her dark hair was t- were touched by no frost. Semicolon. So one independent clause by itself. In the second one, though, her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. So that's this multi-part clause that we get, except it's not even one clause. It's multiple clauses joined together, right? Um, her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth. That's an independent clause. And the light of stars was in her bright eyes. Independent clause. Gray as a cloudless night, describing her bright eyes, right? Not a separate clause. It keeps kind of dragging out, right? Um, It's like we have these three separate ideas. Idea one, her hair, and it's the fact that she's not gray, right? The second, um, her skin and face. Third, that air about trying positively to identify that air about her that conveyed the sense of not youth, right? Um, uh, okay, those are the three parts of the, of the sentence, right? And it's in that second one that he begins to wander in his description. Um, it, is, it, it is my conclusion, the reason I'm emphasizing, and it may seem um, I'm laying a lot of weight on the syntax here, uh, like who cares where the independent clauses are, the reason I think it's important is that we can see the syntax of this sentence unravels, and I think it's important that it does. Right, It starts off simply as if he's just trying... Like, he wanted to say, the braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Point one. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth. Point two. Yet queenly she looked. Point three. Right? That seems to be, like, the gist of what Frodo's getting at here. But he can't do it. He can't help himself. Right? He... He... Gets distracted. The whole... uh, His description... 
and even his syntax uh, breaks down and stumbles all over itself. As he is looking at her face and skin in order to try to capture, like, okay, so what is it about her that gives me the... She looks really young, right? What is it about her that gives me the impression of not being really young, right? As he's trying to get that from her face, he gets drawn in. Tony, he absolutely falls into poetry, right? Um, He gets to her face, right? Which is clear uh, uh, and flawless and smooth, right? But then we get her eyes, right? Having looked at her face... Uh, to see if her face is has a maturity about it, which gave him the impression of not youth, he 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 sees her eyes and he's drawn into her eyes, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. Now, uh, Tony is right that gray as a cloudless night doesn't make any sense, right? Um, or so. We might think of gray as being the color of clouds, right? So if the night is cloudless, how can it also be gray? Um, I think that um, I think that gray um, gray is a cloudless night. The particular here's how I understand the literal meaning. So first of all. Uh, let me say to begin with, Tony, I don't disagree with you. I think that the um, Tony's premise is that the 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 simile here is kind of not supposed to make sense because um, uh, she is. Um, uh, again, he's trying to capture as um, uh Oh, who was it? As um, Scudo was remembering, um, it's like the you know Sam's description of the elves being you know so happy and sad you know so happy and sad right trying to capture what they're like right uh, with these kind of contradictions. Um, I, I do kind of agree that he's sort of grasping here uh, and c- can even maybe get himself into contradictions in trying to put his finger on what it was like, um, but. But I'm th- what I'm thinking of. Um, here's the key that I use to unlock the gray as a cloudless night simile, and that's her name, Evenstar, right? When I'm thinking of a cloudless, I'm not thinking of a cloudless night at midnight. I'm thinking of a cloudless night at evening, right? I'm thinking of a cloudless night when the Evenstar is the only star that you can see in the sky, the first star to come out, right? When the sky is... The the blue of the sky is faded and it's darkening, but it is not yet black and the sky, the stars are not yet visible um, and it's cloudless, right? Um, I... Uh, um, yes, gray like the gloaming, Toromarthen, is exactly what I'm thinking of there. That's the visual image that I have when I'm trying to think of what gray as a cloudless night looks like. And again, like, since she's called the even star, I feel like that, uh, I feel a certain justification in picturing that. Um, because the night sky, however else, however, you know, I mean, 
it could be fitting in other ways, of course, to be thinking of the starry heavens uh, as being compared to her eyes. That is not an unknown uh, eye, uh, uh, lady's eye simile in the history of poetry. Um, but nevertheless, it doesn't fit gray exactly. And the whole point of the simile is to say they were gray. What kind of gray were they? Um, gray as the midnight sky doesn't actually make any sense really at all, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I absolutely agree, uh, Istarhini, that, uh, uh, the, the gloaming is a really important time for elves, right? This is, uh, this is an, this is definitely, uh, 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 a thing, right, with the elves. Um, yep. Um, okay. So, right, her arms, her face... And then her eyes, the light of stars, of course, we just get stars right there earlier on. The light of stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. Um, yeah, so again, that's why I think of her eyes as like the color of the backdrop, right? Um, just as the stars are beginning to come out. It is possible, Belongsman, that if you're imagining this, a bright night with the stars and moon in the sky, a bright cloudless night, um, that the background, especially when the moon is out, looks more sort of gray than black kind of yeah i mean i I can i can see that as well um yeah um it doesn't actually liken her eyes to the night sky technically it is likening the gray color of her eyes to the night not the sky itself so could it be the gray like She's gray, you know, the, the gray of her eyes is like the shades of gray in which you see the world by starlight. Something like that, right? Possibly. Again, I kind of like the even star. It's the even star connection that makes me think of the, the gray of the sky. But but you're right, JJ, to recall to us there that it doesn't explicitly say it was gray as, as, as the sky on a cloudless night. It's just gray as a cloudless night. Um... Oh man, I keep going AFK. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, good. Let's see. Um, let's see, Matt and a couple others. I think I saw somebody earlier on also who was arguing that, um, uh, the king's writer could be doing this. It's possible. Um, I mean, the so it was that Frodo saw her, her whom few mortals had yet seen. That's the most um, king's writer sounding sentence of the lot. I think uh, to speak of Frodo in the uh, in the third person like that, I would not rule out. Um, Frodo himself writing that sentence. Um, but if there's a bit that we could attribute to uh, uh, Findigil, it would be that one, I would think. Um, but I'm not sure that I'm convinced that... I I, I think that... Um, uh, I, I incline towards thinking that this is Frodo trying to capture his impressions here. Um... And especially since uh, 
as uh, you're right, Tony, that the description is an eyewitness, but as Matt was pointing out, Findigo would have been an eyewitness too, right? I mean, that is, he would have had opportunities to look at Arwen from a distance and try to capture what she looked like, right? So uh, he does have the model to work on, right? To, to work from, rather. Um, but anyway, um, I... Uh, I think the, the the pattern that a couple people have pointed out that some of the similarities um, with um, uh, the description of of uh, um, <laughs> what's her face. I'm sorry, I'm getting tired. Um, uh, you know, uh, Goldberry. Oh goodness, right? Yeah, Goldberry. Uh, with some of the some of the parallels to, you know, the like that massive run-on simile that we were uh, looking at with, you know, the, the my favorite simile in the whole Lord of the Rings um, uh, with the description of Goldberry. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think we can see some similarities there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Because Frodo does slip into poetry trying to vocalize his feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, okay, so let's keep going. So again, back to this really complicated sentence. So he's been drawn into first observing her eyes, right? The light of stars was in her bright eyes, uh, and then trying to capture their color, gray as a cloudless night. And now we're back. Yet queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and spiritual boulders, it is well to remember that the heart of that long, awesome simile, uh, that is given about Frodo's reaction to meeting Goldberry is suddenly, uh, meeting a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers, right? So short the living flowers, he is in fact now confronted by a fair young elf queen. Right. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, she, has, she has flowers, just not living flowers. You're right, Gilgunthir. Anyway, what is the final thing he gets to? What is the thing that makes her look not young? Queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance, as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Um, it is her um, it is her looking, right? It is her eyes, which he just described and finds when he is when he sort of fixes on her eyes, finds the answer to his to the question implicit in this sentence, right? How, what is it about her that makes her seem not young? right? Answer her eyes, not how her eyes look physically. He's described how her eyes look physically, or sort of the impact of her eyes, right? This is the further impact of her eyes, right? She looked queenly. What is it about her that makes her look queenly? Why does she not just look young, like a teenager, like a child, right? Um, you know, she, you know, from the way she's described, you know, she could be, uh, you know, a young girl, like, you know, uh, quite young, um, but there's something about her that, that makes her look queenly. And the answer appears to be thought and knowledge were in her glance. 
it is the wisdom of Arwen, it is the intelligence of Arwen that sets her aside, as of one who has known many things that the world brings. She has experienced the world. She knows a lot, right? Um, and that is really interesting, really important. Like Leobot, I agree, that's important, right? Kind of sounds like Million. Yeah, does sound a little bit like Million, right? Um, that she is sitting there enthroned, right, under a canopy, um, there like a queen and what is it about her that looks queenly? It is her wisdom, uh, the wisdom and, and, and intelligence of her eyes uh, that makes her look like a queen. That is a bit uh, Melian-esque, I agree. Um, above her brow, her head was covered with a cap of silver lace netted with small gems, glittering white, but her soft gray raiment had no ornament save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. Um... Why? So this sentence is describing her clothing. And again, it seems to me that the primary thrust of this sentence is negative. Right? That is to say, she is um, queenly, she looks. So she's sitting on what looks like a throne and she's described as queenly. And then he immediately emphasizes what? She's not wearing a crown. Above her brow... Her head was, right, all the way through that sentence, you know, if we if we cut it off after the letter C, right, above her brow, her head was, what's the next word, right, crowned, presumably, right? I mean, we might expect the word crowned to come, but we don't get um, crowned, right? Her head was covered with a cap of silver lace netted with small gems, glittering white. So it's 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 beautiful, it's ornate, but it's not a it's not a crown, it's a it's a cap of lace. But her soft grey raiment had no ornament, save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. Um she's not she doesn't look like a queen. She's not dressed like a queen, right? Inasmuch as queens like you tend to dress the part. Right, you set yourself aside as a queen by how you dress. Right, um, you you dress fancy for a reason, and not you know you're not just flossing, you're not just fronting. You know that's not how it works. It's it's um, um, it's like it's important for political reasons, right? To make sure that you are always recognizable as the queen. It's a symbol of your status. It's important, right? She doesn't um, she doesn't do that. Right. She doesn't. Uh, she is dressed simply. So we get again in her another kind of contradiction. Right. She has the presence of a queen, even though she's 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 she doesn't look like a queen in that sense. Right. Not outwardly, not in her dress. Um, she uh, she's wearing a cap, a beautiful, ornate cap, um, but not uh, uh, not a queenly crown. And she does not wearing a queenly dress. Um yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now, Tim, it's true that modern monarchs often dress very simply, but we're not there, right? Um, uh, there, none of the royalty in Tolkien's world are the Windsors, right? None at all. Um, 
but um, anyway, uh, yeah, Tony, it is fun to imagine the silver, the cap, right? The cap of silver lace and uh, what it might be uh, an air, you know, is this an heirloom from Celebrimbor's people? Possibly, possibly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, is it possible there's mithril involved? People are wondering about mithril. Possibly. I, um, I don't know. I don't know if we can guess mithril just because it says silver, but anyway, JJ, I agree. There is clearly a trend that Queens in Tolkien are associated, um, with wisdom. Yes. I mean, in fact, JJ, do we have a single counterexample to that? We've got a bunch of dead queens, right, or queenly figures, right? You know, we've got uh, both Theoden's wife and his sister are both dead. We've got, of course, Faramir and Boromir's mom is dead. Um, uh, Elrond's wife, of course, is dead. Queen Peruthiel is very dead. But Mad Violinist, right, we have... But again, she, the cats of Queen Beruthiel, uh, it's hard to count that one. It's hard to count. Again, certainly, as it took Tolkien a while to flesh out the story of Queen Beruthiel, right? Um, but, um, uh... Anyway, so yeah, but the, the only thing we know for sure about Queen Beruthiel from the text of of uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings is that she, she she kept cats, and you can make your own conclusions about whether or not that was wise. Um, but I know Elrond's wife isn't dead. But you see what I mean? Like we have a bunch of dead or missing wives. Like they're, they're not they're absent. They're not there. Right? That's 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 only the point I'm making. Um, and um, so yeah, we don't. All of the sort of reigning queenly figures, like the in-situ queens, right, that we get, are all associated with wisdom. Again, are there any counterexamples? Do we ever see a foolish queen? Like, actually meet a bad or foolish queen. And more than when I don't think I can count Lobelia Sackville Baggins there. Not that she's not a person of some significance, but uh, I definitely would not lump her in with the queens. Um... Yeah, I um, um, I don't think we do get an example. I can't think of one in any of Tolkien, even in the Silmarillion. Even in the Silmarillion, I mean, Morwen fails in wisdom at times, but she's not exactly a reigning queen at that time either. Um, again, she's not like. Are there queens sitting on a throne who do a bad job of it in, in, you know, in, in Tolkien? I, I can't, I can't think of, uh, I can't think of any examples of that. Whereas exactly Mad Violinist, we get plenty of examples of male ruler, ba- bad male rulers, bad or, uh, flawed at least, um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, uh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought through that we don't have a single negative example. We don't get a bad, we don't ever meet a bad queen, uh, in any of the actual stories. Um, yep, yep, no, we never do. Um, 
and that's uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, Mornowin and likely a bot were both at the same time here thinking about uh, Erendis in uh, in Unfinished Tales. Um, yeah, kind of though. Even there, um, even there, it's a little debatable. Actually, um, I hate to say Arendis is the worst queen, right, of all the queens that we get. Oh, you're thinking not a, not of Arendis, but of her daughter. Um, okay, right. But even there, Scudo, I would argue, we only get hear about her reign in plot summary mode, right? Um, that is to say, the questionable reign, right, of Aldarion and Arendis's daughter is like an appendix to the story of Aldarion and Arendis themselves. But anyway, Arendis is certainly the most complicated queen figure we get. Um, um, but Mad Violinist, I agree that in Numenor we do get queens associated with restoring the right ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree that Arathel wasn't too wise, but again, the point isn't that there are no foolish women at all in Tolkien, that all women in Tolkien are wise. Queens, right? Arathel's not, I mean, she's the king's sister. She's an important person, uh, but she's not exactly a reigning queen in the same kind of way. Um, but anyway, uh, interesting. Okay. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen. Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Hey, Matt. Okay. All right. Hang on, Matt. Let's compromise here, right? I think we can compromise here. First paragraph written by Frodo, second paragraph inserted by Findigil. Right? I can get behind that. Right? That Frodo is the one trying to capture his experience of seeing her for the first time. Right? And then Findigil is like, okay, yeah, but that's not enough. <laughs> right? We need a little more uh, on the historic significance of this, of A, this person, and B, this moment. Right? Uh, than just... She looked young, but not young, and queenly, but, you know, also not quite queenly in the way that you would expect. Um, and so Findigil pipes in with, so it was that Frodo saw her, and then starts giving her something like titles, right? Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again. That's not quite exactly something a herald might say from the door before she enters, but it's, it's in that direction. Right. Uh, this is a much more formal declaration of her identity and her significance prior to her marriage to to Aragorn. Right. Um, where she is coming from, uh, setting up the the significance. Right. This is deliberately would be deliberately in the mind of Findigil, and of course deliberately in the mind of Tolkien, who is going back and ent- writing this in later on. Um, uh, 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 setting up the significance of the marriage, right, later on. Because um, it does, um, J.J., sound like someone writing 
a formal history um, a bit, yes. Um, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Yeah, that's a very formal sentence. Um, like the other sentence we were looking at, divided with two semicolons again. Um, but notice this does not have any of that kind of digressive, scattered quality of that other sentence, where it just seemed like the whole sentence was kind of getting away from Like, he had an ornate structure for the sentence in mind, but it was getting away from him as he was trying to capture things, right? Um, instead, uh, this is a very stately sentence. So it was that... For, I mean, imagine this being declaimed, right? Like, as in a court. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. The cadence of that sentence is not digressive at all, right? It's, uh, uh, it's, it's very good, very, very stately. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Long had long she had been. Notice the word order reversal there, right? Um, again, sounding like either uh, very formalized, um, you know, sort of historical writing, or sound or poetry. But again, a much more formalized kind of poetry than the uh, complicated similes, right? That uh, the previous paragraph was doing. Um, Long she had been in the land of her mother's kin, in Lorien, beyond the mountains, and was but lately returned to Rivendell, to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladon and Elro here, were out upon errantry, for they rode often far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Forgetting never? Right? Out upon errantry? Really? Right? Uh, the whole register of this paragraph is different. Um, yeah, Toramarth and I agree. It has, the whole thing has the attitude of, will all please, please rise, right, uh, uh, in honor of the queen. Absolutely. Um, yes, and I agree, errantry in this context does not sound like a word that hobbits would use, not in this way. Um, yes, yes. Um, and but lately returned, Mike uh, points to as well. Um, yeah, no, the, uh, yep, agreed, totally agreed. The 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 um, the tone of this second paragraph absolutely reeks of a king's writer, right? Um, completely, completely ready to uh, uh, to to. Uh, these are some some. Uh, a few very suitable words, right, exactly, but not very Hobbit-like suitable words, I agree. Um, interesting, though, that it transitions into narrative as well, right? That is to say, it starts off as if it's merely an interjection, right? Frodo's narrating, and he's trying to capture his feelings and his impressions of seeing Arwen for the first time, and then he's going to go on and continue talking about the feast, Right, and, and we then when he went and sat down at the table, and whom he met when he sat down at the table, and all that, right? Um, but and but and, and then Findigal just interrupts, right? So it was, right? Um, but the end of the paragraph is not just an introduction; it's part of the narrative, right? Um, that 
you know, where are her brothers Eladon and Elro here? For they rode far afield. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, for Thoughtless, I agree with you. I think, you know, the effect of this paragraph, like, why, why, why do this, right? Why, again, here, here I'm asking my clumsy why question. What is the effect of including a paragraph which maintains this kind of very, very stately rhetorical register all the way through? I agree, Fourth Dauntless, one of the absolute consequences of that is that the reader is impressed with the fact that this character is very significant and important despite the fact that she's only appearing for a short time and we're not going to talk about her again after this uh, really, again, once for a very, very long time. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. That's definitely the effect that this has. It certainly impressed me. I mean, I remember. Um, and I was a little confused in retrospect. I, I remember coming to this passage in my you know childhood days reading The Lord of the Rings and being like, whoa, like this... Uh, you know, so it was that from like Arwen, daughter of Elwin, I'm like, this, she's a big deal. I remember being impressed by this paragraph. Um, and then a little bit confused about the fact that she subsequently vanishes from the narrative. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so um, let's see. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Mike, I agree. I love hearing the shifts in register here. That's that's uh, it's totally worth going at a really slow pace. Um, notice also, so when were Elrond's sons added into the text? Mm, now, I think somebody remind me. Elrond and Elro here weren't there with the Grey Company, were they? I don't think they were. Um, did we get the sons of Elrond prior to? So when we had the writing of the Grey Company and the first. Uh, you know, when Aragorn first went through the paths of the dead and everything, I know the Grey Company was there. The the, the Rangers came down uh, to help him. Uh, but I don't think Eladon and Elro here were there. They were late additions as well. Right? Pretty sure. Um, um, so, yeah, the concept of the Sons of Elrond, and certainly the concept of the death, or the suffering, right, and passing away from Middle-earth, uh, uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, Calabrian, uh, clearly um, is emerging here. We are getting context for her, right? We're getting. Uh, it's almost like as he's writing this in, Tolkien can't resist like a little bit of backstory, right? Um, he is kind of fleshing out her character a bit. So yes, Bricktails, absolutely. Elrond's whole family is created right in this paragraph. Yes, exactly. Um, Elrond's role, he's been a super important character for a really long time in the history of Tolkien's work. Um, and I don't mean in The Hobbit, like sort of accidentally so, including his, his role in The Hobbit, but thinking of his Silmarillion role. He's always been super important but important as a solitary figure. In fact, his solitariness was, in a sense, part of the... Like, he was the one focal point through which the Elder Days sort of filtered into. Like, where he is the... The character of Elrond in Tolkien's imagination has always stood at the gateway, right? He is the, he is the point of contact between the old days and the new days. Um, between the old world and the new world. Um, 
And so in that sense, the very singularity of Elrond, um, he was never a gang. He was never a group um, uh, uh, in the Silmarillion tradition. So, yeah, family details. Was he ever married? Did he have kids? Those are questions that I don't think we can answer from the early Silmarillion texts that talk about Elrond, even which mention Elrond as a super, super important person, right? Um, even in the later, uh, when he was doing the Numenor stuff in The Lost Road, um, and we get Elrond as, you know, part-time king of Numenor, part-time uh, remnant elf uh, in in uh, in Middle-earth, and being the, the hero of the Last Alliance, and then we get Gilgalad's character coming in. But anyway... In there, like, is he married? Does he have kids? The, the, I don't think those questions are ever answered there either. Um, because, yes, his um, uh, sort of singularity um, uh, w- was, um, uh, was an important element of his character. Um, so, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. <laughs> Irinda says at some point Tolkien remembered that Luthien's line was in danger of failing. Right, exactly. We, we, we better keep that going, right? Now, we still got the Numenorean, so it's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so, um, so, yeah, so that is to say, all of that was to agree, uh, Bricktails, with exactly your point. Elrond's whole family is created in this paragraph. Absolutely. And after the fact, right? After the fact. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Notice also the connection between Eladon and Elro here and the Rangers of the North is established here. Again, this paragraph is written after the, the Grey Company has written, right? So Tolkien has decided to definitely place Eladon and Elro here there. Um, so he's setting that up in this paragraph um, in part. But of course he's also um, he's also setting up the simple fact of them being you know active and out and involved. Right? Um, and this apart from the mere presence of siblings and a little bit about their character, that they're out upon errantry, right? That these are, you know, the uh, they're sort of, you know, they are uh, uh, young elf lords of Daring Do. Um, the one detail that we get is a tragic story, right? Um, we don't know what happened, but somehow their mother, Elrond's wife, ended up being tortured in the dens of orcs. That sounds horrible, but we know nothing else other than that. This one little brief glimpse into their family history, and it's a tragic family history. Um, So again, that's when Tolkien has one paragraph to, uh, you know, give some context to Arwen uh, and explain what, uh, uh, you know, sort of determine what Elrond's family story is. That's what he does. Um, yeah. Um, good. 
<laughs> I love that. Um, uh, Luke says that Arwen Undomiel, daughter of Elrond, even star of her people, has the same number of speaking lines as Odo Proudfoot. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and so many fewer than like Lobelia Sackville Baggins, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful observation, Luke. Yep. Yep. Um, good. Well, now it's time for the field trip. We got through our description here. I was totally planning to talk about more than one slide, but I don't regret the digression to talk about Arwen. As I, I, I get this is my best chance to talk about that, and um, especially since it was just fresh in my mind since we just talked about it um, in Sauron Defeated class a couple weeks back, uh, looking at the many partings stuff. Um, so anyway... Thanks all for joining me again this week. See you again next week. I'm going to be around actually for a while. I think I, unless something weird happens, I should be able to be back every Tuesday between now and the first Tuesday of August. First. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, the second full week of August, I'm going away again, but I'll be, I'll be around until then. So, uh, long, uninterrupted stretch. Let's see if we can get all the way to the poem. Right? Who knows? Um, anyway, awesome. So, thanks everybody. So, I'm going um, to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter, as always. Very good. Thanks, everybody. And we're going to still keep going on Twitch. Now, for those of you who are still listening on Twitch, and so I hope that the, the, the folks from the Talon can stay for this too. So, um, before you go, those of you who usually go, uh, we have, uh, so Valori is going to perform oh something for you because I was hoping you forgot. Oh, I haven't <laughs> forgotten because you promised at Mythmoot. Yes, so at Mythmoot, Valori was running our room of requirement, which is our room, uh, set off to the side where there are lots of like fun, quiet activities. It's the room where people go to kind of chill out, socialize in a quiet environment, have some alone time if you need it. Um, and there are crafts and games and books and lots of wonderful things in the Room of Requirement. It's a, It's been a wonderful addition to Mythmood over the last couple of years. Um, I love doing it. Yeah, it's been fantastic. So, um, at Mythmood, one of the... One of the uh, uh, pastimes one of the activities, activities. that was yep. available at the room of requirement was a group translation project and the challenge uh was to translate the chorus uh well no you explain this <laughs> yes yeah, it was it was a challenge thing. to see because we had all these books on, on many many books on elven and dwarven translation if anyone wanted to translate rick astley's never gonna give you up into uh, uh, Quenya or Cinderin. Well, I, I yeah. did say Cinderin, but Cinderin that was a, I understand that was a shoot for the moon. That was the yeah. scenario. That was so, uh, but, yeah. That, that was a lot to ask. Um, yes, yes. But, I, I, yeah, I, I figured maybe you know thirty people, you know, thirty elves <laughs> working for thirty minutes or something like that. Anyway, so but but someone did rise to the equation. Most of this is from I think the entirety of this is actually from due to uh, Marie from Silm Film Project. Yes, yes, exactly. Translated this into Quenyan. And okay, so this real quick. Yes. Um, is my mic working? This is the chorus. Yep. Yes, this is the chorus. Oh darn. Okay, here we go. Uyo antuviantie, uyo vartuvantie, varketester arkei ar atuvantielo. 
you know, over there uh, in Oregon, um, you know, the, 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 the parties out here, you know, in Arid Lewin stop. Um, but then there's a, there's a later settlement. Um, so, you know, there, there can be an additional layer because, like, there's no reason folks can't live here and, like, grow grapes and things like that, right? So, yeah. Um, uh, so that's why there would be a, uh, a, a, a level of architecture which is older than the current Kellendim that we see, which, again, we're speculating is being built in the latter part of the Third Age to accommodate the elves who are moving Grey Haven's word, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, these are, these are the inter- so the vineyard was the intermediate one. Is that yeah. Correct? This is the outgoing, so. the outgoing party. So yeah, this would be, um, that would be in the middle. So if it's in the middle, it could have been abandoned at the time of the last Alliance. It doesn't quite mm-hmm. look that old though. It doesn't like exactly look uh, like a three. It looks like it fell old. into disrepair. More yeah. Than anything. Like maybe this, just the ground went sour and they, Packed up. Like again, you think about the. It was up here, right? Yeah. So I'm just going back to yeah, the farm yeah. for a second, just to. Are we m- going to Colondum? Oh, are we, we're heading up there to the vineyard now. Yeah, I'm just going up to the vineyard. So I just want to sort of start okay. back at the vineyard briefly, and then we'll head north from here because I'm pretty sure there's okay. another set of ruins north of here, and I want to see. Um, yes, up on the hill on the opposite from the vintner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's yeah it's 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 north of here. But anyway, um, right. What we don't, what I don't recall seeing here, are yeah. I mean, look at the like the towers are still complete. Remember how in the party spot, right? We had towers that were half broken off and lying in pieces, right? I mean, this I I agree with your assessment that this this stuff only looks like kind of an ill repair. It doesn't. It's not, this isn't a, nobody would call this a ruin. No. <laughs> they call it a wreck. Right, it or might a be money, a wreck, but yeah, it's not, It's definitely money not, pit. not a ruin, yeah. Exactly, Toramarth, and just some scrubbing bubbles or some elbow grease in this place could be as good as new. And again, I'm just looking at the houses again briefly, um, or the halls. Yeah, no ruins. Nothing is a ruin here. Nothing is a ruin here. So this might not even be, so that... The more I think about it, then, yeah, I'm just looking at Yeah, this doesn't even look like... It's overgrown. It's got lichen all over it and ivy and stuff. So that it doesn't... Apart from the fact that there look to be lights in the windows at night, um, apart from that fact, uh, there don't... There's... This could be a house which is merely abandoned. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's like one step away from sleeping rough in that one. You know, they just have, like, cots on the floor or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, I would suspect then that this was abandoned only quite recently. Recently enough that it, do, I mean, like if you look at these columns, right? This is kind of the classic what what we see in this whole area. Um, you know, it's got, you know, sort of lichen growing on it, right? It's it's not overgrown, but it's um, not pretty. It's not pretty. So, um, and yes, there are goblins that have taken it over Lilith. So it could simply be that there were elves who lived here quite recently, but 
then they left and the goblins came and there went the neighborhood, right? Um, yeah. But, but I don't know. I the, the, it it looks like these have aged. You know, the the columns have aged and the towers have aged, um, but not much. I gotta think within the third age is what we're um, is what we're imagining here. Maybe abandoned during the long winter, Luke. I like that theory. Uh, recent enough, like decades. Not even centuries, just decades ago. Oh yeah, twenty years. Even just twenty years would do this. Could could do this. Yeah, yeah. Do they know anything about crop rotation yet? That's a good question. Elves. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta think they've worked that out by now. Uh, but um, well, it's all it's all great when you have Valor helping you, but you know, but yeah, how good are they really? <laughs> but here's the thing. So here's the other. So the comparative good repair of the buildings here at the vineyard seem to okay. place a fairly high lower bound on, on, on like, or yeah, a fairly high lower bound on, on, on how late they were built, right? They, they were clearly built relatively recently, but I would say a cap on how recently they were built would be the differences in architecture between this and Kalondam. I mean, if this was just like a suburb of Kalondam, right? You know, if someone were like, hey, we're building this settlement down there by the river, but, you know, there's a nice place to grow grapes up the hill, you know, down the road, across the little bridge there. I think I'll go build a vineyard. If this were really part of the settlement or a suburb of the settlement, um, you'd think the architecture would be more similar, right? So I think we have to determine that by looking at the architecture in Dwyland. Yeah, let's keep looking around because that's a current city. So let's see how. So, how so we're yeah, we don't exactly have your twenty here. I think everyone's just kind of running around right now. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, apologies. So I'm I'm now I'm riding out towards um, going back to the main road. Okay. Going back to the main road where this little path to the vineyard branches off, just to the north of that first bridge. Because, yeah, I mean, the difference in architecture there in the vineyard could be explained simply by, like, it was built by different people with different tastes, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's less modern, you know, that it's less current. Isn't the... Oh, yeah, I see it. There it is, right? The Okay, so we're, there's Duolant, and... Hmm, what do we have? From a distance... Duland, more like Kellendim or more like the vineyard? That tower looks like uh, the vineyard, doesn't it? Let me see. see now I'd have to like go back and check. Yeah, it does kind of look like the homesteads across the river. Well, they, they like their, their columns standing by themselves like the vineyard did. Yeah. Well, all right. Let us table that and go to this uh, uh, ruin. Oh, going to the ruin over here? Yeah. Let's go to the ruin. Okay, we've got this. Yeah, this is this is like the party place. This lake. Yep, exactly. This is an ancient ruin. Oh, yeah. Ancient party place. Ancient party place. Yep, yep. You know the young elves are still sneak, sneaking up here to have raves late at night. Nobody's watching. Yeah. You know, can't rule it out. Yep. Yep, we've got the filigree work on top of the stone we've got the crumbly down towers we've got the blue kind of lapis marble mm -hmm. looking stuff mm -hmm. 
Yep. Yep. Very fancy. Um, Bricked up windows. But yeah, I think, yeah. can't figure out what those shapes are, huh? No, me neither. Sorry, Thomas, we're at the ruins. Uh, we're at Dol Ringwest, just, uh, yes. just south and west of Duoland. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and this is clearly. I don't think we don't see any. We don't see any irregular. I don't think we see any irregularities anywhere. This is all the same. So we don't see. This is not like built on top of or have other ruins. But I mean, we have. No, this is on a sheer here, cliff, right? actually. Yeah. Look at exactly. the, the flagstone. It's so different from your usual elven road. It's actually a little kind of mm. crazy, crazy quilt looking. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the flagstones are interesting here. Oh, that was a goblin. Yeah, the okay. kind of veined stone is really interesting yeah. there. Um, yeah, definitely a kind of like a marble of some kind, but it's blue marble. Yeah. Now, um, blue mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. that's what they're called, the blue mountains. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Now, Matt, you're right. Um, does anybody remember the time frame? So in the in the in the Elf and Dwarf intros, um, how long has the war with the Dower Hands been happening? Ooh. Could that explain some of the abandonment? I wouldn't think it would explain the abandonment of this place. Uh, it was it was back in ruin. Bilbo's time because the whole thing starts off with you not being chosen to accompany Thorn and Company. Ah. So that's how long the the Scorgrim Dowhern nonsense happened. Right. The, yeah. The 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 most recent thing, like since Scorgrim was yeah. was uh, was 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 raised. But yeah, no, the older conflict when Scorgrim like Scorgrim's first like when he was just a dwarf and not a creepy, not a creepy semi undead thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Matt says he founded it. Says it was six hundred years before the present time of the game. Okay. okay. That wouldn't explain okay. this necessarily. I wouldn't think. I mean, one of the things that I'm judging by here is I'm thinking about um, I'm thinking about Eregion, right? I'm thinking ahead to Eregion geographically, and the level of ruination in these ruins kind uh -huh. of is like the ruins that we see in Eregion. Right, like second age yes. ruins. Like now, of course, yeah, and Holland and, and yes, Gwingress. Yes, exactly. Those now those had help, right? As they were also the site of war, so you know those those ruins could have you know burned down, fallen over, and sunken into the swamp. But uh, but but still, it's it's a similar time frame, right? Um, so yeah, second age abandonment. So that 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 would match with. You know the theory that this stratum of architecture here in this area is was abandoned at the time of that war in the second age um but yeah could the um could the vineyard for instance have been abandoned um uh could 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 that have been abandoned at the time of the uh war with the dower hands beginning um that seems very possible. Hmm. That seems very possible. Now it's, you know, we were saying it wasn't really ruined. 
It's only been 600 years. Of course, in elf time, that's not that significant. Yeah. These arches are super plain. I have a pair of socks that are 600 years old. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they like their arches standing here doing nothing. Yeah, random arches are definitely a feature uh, of this area. But, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, Once again, it's the whole, why have a ceiling when you can look at the stars? (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, and especially if you don't mind getting wet. Um, But, (laughs) but, yeah, this is, I I don't remember seeing, um, I don't remember seeing arches this plain just plain smooth gray stone yes these look very dwarven a little bit though the flowers on top beneath the um beneath the torches you know the the lamps there look uh-huh. kind of elvish you can see on this one yeah. too at the bottom they have sort of a scroll work at the bottom at, at the, the very, very bottom base. really at uh, the plinth plinth is that what it's called Oh, over That's there. Called? Yeah. The, the yes. other one doesn't have it, but this one does. Uh, it's sunk in the ground. Oh, I see. Right. Oh, right. Okay. As you can barely see where the top of it might be. Okay. Got it. Got it. Uh-huh. Okay. Sure. So that the land has subsided beneath it is suggestive. Okay. Let's see. Love the cherry trees. Hmm. Okay, somebody remind me. The spiky bits at the top of these towers. Those were definitely on top of the towers in the vineyard. Yeah, the vineyard had the Church of the Bomb kind of missile spires. Exactly. Yes, the spires which kind of remind me of the the jet with which you shoot the aliens in Space Invaders. (laughs) Um, Yes. uh, Yes. Um... Somebody confirm for me. Do do we get this rooftop feature in Killendom proper as well, or only at the vineyard? I think I've only seen these turtle shells at the vineyard. I, I, that's my not... impulse too. That's what I want to say also, but I would love corroboration of that because some of this, I mean, a lot of it looks like Killendom. I mean, this yeah, it's, this house yeah. looks kind of Kellendim. But that one, this gazebo tower, this is basically the vineyard tower, but like <clears throat> without the lichen correct. growing on the pillars. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Love so. the fish fountain. Really yeah. interesting fish just like Almost as if the fish has come leaping up out of the fountain. Um, I mean, of course, it would have been a rather inadequate water supply for a fish of that size, but still. Well, that's why it's jumping out. It's yeah, going to get exactly. me out of this shallow bucket here. Yeah, yeah. Fishes. I mean, they're still by the river. I mean, you, you, you notice that fish would probably play a big part of their lives. Right. Whoa, this dude is talking about the accomplishments or failures of the past uh, paling in comparison to the prospects for the future. That's an interesting elvish sentiment. Oh, was that, that was the housing director. 
Oh, well, still a forward-thinking housing director. Okay. Yes, I mean, I, I mean, think of it when you're trying to sell real estate to elves. It's kind of a, <laughs> you know, who, who are leaving. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, hey, there's look, not much it's, a, it's an egret. Yep. We've seen those guys before. We saw them in Rivendell and, by the stables. We saw them in that other place whose name is eluding me. Uh-huh. Melin, and a door it? that goes nowhere. Yeah. Well, into a little area. This Very is tall. This is, this is, what is it? A random forge. Okay. Yeah, it's a forge. You yeah, know, doors like on the other side, have. too. Okay. It's an emergency fire exit. I mean, okay. it, is, it is a forge. Must be an emergency fire exit. Maluan Inn. Yes, that's the one, I believe. Um, anyway, yeah. okay. Uh, no turtle shell roofs in Kellendom proper, Druid's Fire says. Okay. There's the red Thank shell you. with a couple of the Space Invader ships aspires on top, but none of the greenish ones. Okay, so there were Space Invaders uh, tops there. That's one of the things. Okay. Uh-huh. I couldn't remember for sure. I knew that they were there in the... Uh, yeah, see, this is one of the buildings which looks more like Kellendim proper to me. And Rivendell looks a bit like a marketplace. Yes. Yes, true. I like the colonnades here. These are beautiful. Yes. These, I was looking at the this detail work in between here. This sort of silver stuff is... Branches or... Yeah. <laughs> trout spotting. Yeah. yeah I mean, if we're going okay. with a fishy theme. Right, like exactly. Said. Well, we have that one fountain. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Statue. Statue of... Don't fall off. in. Yeah. Oh, he's got a beard, right? Oh, he does have a beard, which is funny because the Kyrdin in the game doesn't. He's sporting like an Amish beard. Yeah. Who is this guy? Have we seen this guy? I don't know. Who's the dude with the sword? Dude with elven elf? With, it is an elf. No. No, it's not an elf. Oh, yeah. He's got little round... Little round ears. Monkey baby ears. Okay, so this is... Who? Not a Lendo. No. A young, jaunty Lendo? Maybe. No. No, think about where we are. What does this have anything to do with anything? Well, I mean, we could be on the route... Of the Last Alliance, right? Gilgalad might have come yeah. through here. Um, mm-hmm. And, okay, hang on a second. Map time. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> okay. So we are near, we are on the River Loon, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So if we think about it, with Linden being over here on the extreme west coast, right? On the other side of the Blue mm-hmm. Mountains. So this is where Gilgalad is coming from. And we know that uh, Elendil met up with, well, we know that Elendil met up with Gilgalad in, on Weathertop. 
Okay. But. Okay, not going to lie. That's, that was a really inefficient route for... Uh, <laughs> maybe he had business down there. I don't know, you know. But if you look at it, Anuminous, is there a water connection? Hang on. Uh, I don't no. know. It seems like we're closer yes. to even dim than we are. No. Yeah, not on the map itself. Not on the... Oops, sorry. Not on the... Uh, uh, does it connect? It kind of connects to the water? That's what I'm saying. It looks like down here... There even could be a, a, a water connection from Lake Evendim to the River Loon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, anyway, could Elendo, maybe Elendo could have come through because I'm, 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 I'm asking myself, how did Elendo get to Weathertop, right? Um, if Elendo, he could have come down the Brandywine and then traveled through Briot to Weathertop that way. Like, yeah. that's certainly very plausible that he could have taken that route. Yeah, yeah. He could have come down the Loon. But really, as you say, I can't imagine that Elendo even went through here. Yeah, no. So this why just do they have any like a, human this, on this? It would have to be someone like a Lendl or I mean, it's got a famous be high king of old or something. Well, it could be a high king of old, some kind of. My mind's blanking because it's twelve eleven. So. <laughs> yeah, let's see. So, all right, Druid's fire. I'm looking at where he's pointing. He's. He's facing, like his body is facing east, but his his actual posture, his, his hips are turned, but he's facing northeast uh-huh. towards uh, Anuminous. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem to have much armor. It's just a robe and yeah. a belt. He's got a sword, but yes, that's a casual, That's he's not dressed for battle by any means. He doesn't seem to be a king. He doesn't have a crown or anything. He's got a headband. Yeah. Does he have a headband? Not like a Could Star be? of the North headband, necessarily? Or just a, maybe. Nothing bound to his brow, in particular? No, I agree. It just kind of looks like a sweatband, really. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those, those barbarian mullet bat holder backer dealies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's got something to hold back his mullet. And he's got a sword and a robe. Relatively a cool fancy belt. robe. Yeah. Um, Seems more like a wise man than a action hero. But with sword. Um, sword could just denote power of another kind. It could. Could. But it seems to be pointing at... I mean, like, facing, confronting, like, with its arm stretched out towards... an in the direction of Anuminous. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose beyond Anuminous in the general direction of Angmar. Uh, but... Hmm. This is a puzzlement. Have we seen the statue elsewhere? Arvidui? Uh, Skol- Skolham is uh, thinking maybe it's Arvidui. Hmm. On That's his way to Farakal. Oh, I see. It's 
a that's a good suggestion. Maybe. Kind of a grim and very short story to commemorate with a huge statue. I mean, look at this thing. It's five times our height. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, Lilith, I wouldn't think it could be Elros. He would surely be depicted as a king. Yeah, yeah. Funny thing is, I really don't think I've seen any other statues like this. And usually the statues we see, you know, there's the Luthien one and the Celebrimbor ones we see hundreds of times. Right, right. Exactly, yeah, I don't... Very interesting. I agree with you, Fourth Dauntless, that the sword is not held in a confrontational posture. Um, <clears throat> this is a this is a sword in peace, right? It's being held out almost pommel first, not quite pommel first. Okay, several people are suggesting a arendel, but why would you depict well, a arendel this way? I mean, he's, he's a mariner. He's a mariner. Like, maybe a patron saint of all boatsmen now. Sure, but, like, surely there would be, like, something at least a little bit nautical about Arendel? I mean... And again, nothing on his brow. Well, we, this is he's wearing what the fishermen wore on the docks. The elven ones, anyway. Right. I suppose. But, but now, I mean... The sword has me stumped on that one, too. Yeah, the sword doesn't f seem apposite to Arendel. What if it's abstract? What if it's symbolic? Symbolic of man's peace with elves? Yes. Or the line of Numenor? Maybe. Let's see. Um... I dig it. Not line of Numenor, because again, I think we'd be more crowny. Um, uh, human being, wise but robust human being, not long white beard human being, and um, not glittering warrior human being. Something right, in not armored human being, which is pretty unusual, honestly. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, human warrior in the fullness of his strength uh, you know dressed in robes of peace and holding a sword but in a peaceful posture and humble adornment on his head and humble adornment on his head. Um, so maybe it's, a, it's it sounds like we're we're talking about a human who has been crafted in the elven ideal. Yeah, like is this? Yeah, exactly. Is this like here is humans as we wish they were? Yeah. Well, the human statues would all look like they're trying to compensate for something. <laughs> right. Speaking of the sword. The Matt is right that the hilt pattern of this sword is uh, very particular. 
Um, I know we see swords like this elsewhere in the game. Where else do we see them? Who 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 uses swords like this? Rangers, right? Is it? Maybe. I think so. Looks like a Roman spada. So a little bit. O'Malley says Gondor. Kind of like, like bigger. Yeah. Okay. Okay, it's like a Gondorian sword. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to drop a picture of a Gondorian knight with a sword of the hilt like this, that would be handy. But let's run with that for now. Let's say, yeah. basically, it means Numenorian sword. That obviously would make sense because whoever, whichever elf it was, presumably it was an elf who crafted this statue, would have had Numenorian models, certainly. So, okay. Of the sword, maybe, and then had an elf pose. <laughs> right. Hmm. Hmm. Intriguing. Well, now I wonder what that broken statue at the the foot of the the water is. If it's the same one or a different one. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we'll look around. Yeah. Druid's fire says there's another statue down lower, but we'll we'll look at him next yep. time. All right, we'll come Absolutely. back to Dueland and continue. This statue is a find all in itself. This is really interesting. <laughs> I'm thinking vague ah. Numenorian, looking towards yeah. Anubis. Some holding... sort of avatar for Numenor in general. Yeah, exactly. Young but bearded, so there's like wisdom but youth. There's, you know, old and, you know, young and yet not young. Um... There's the robes of formality and peace. Um, there's the sword. Uh, you know, strength is in his hand as well, right? You know, there's the sword, but he's holding it in peace and yet, uh, you know, potentially in warning. That's quite a large sword. Um, <laughs> there's wisdom on his brow instead of a crown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, that it's just kind of a tribute to their Numenorean friends and allies in an impersonal kind of way. They're sister cities. <laughs> right, something like that. Yeah, okay. Let's go with that. We'll see what we think of the other statue next time. Uh, we'll, we'll find yeah. that next time. But, um, okay, so we'll return to Dueland and, and continue if we, uh, we might finish up here and then continue on uh, up. We're nearing the end, but not quite at the end of the elf lands up here. Um, so we will have some ruins to explore up here as we transition towards a dwarf land uh, as we move forward next time. But All right. Anyway. All right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. Really fun session here tonight. I uh, look forward to joining you again next week. And, of course, we have Mythgard Academy tomorrow night uh, as we look to get as close as we can get to the end of the... Um, um, to the end of the... Uh, um, the history of The Lord of the Rings. And then Silm Film on Thursday night. And then... Uh, uh, Grifflet on Friday. So thanks very All much, right. everybody. Good night. Namariye. 
Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.